we've got a picture for you. In uh, 1879, Lieutenant George DeLong, that's him, set out with a crew on the USS Jeanette in hopes of claiming the North Pole for the United States. His plans were based on maps, like those of Dr. August uh, Peterman, um, who believed that there was an open polar ice-free sea teeming with marine life, quote, whose waters could be smoothly sailed as one might sail across the Caribbean or the Mediterranean. All an explorer had to do was find what Peterman called a, quote, thermometric gateway, a presumed a portal through the icy circle previous expeditions kept running into. George DeLong and his crew of 28 men wanted to find that portal. Now, while Dr. Peterman was an award-winning map maker whose work was based on the eyewitness accounts of those of previous voyages, his expertise in known geography did not make him an authority on unknown lands, which in this case, he presumed was an open sea. The Jeanette encountered ice that seemed to stretch out forever, and it didn't take long for DeLong to realize that Peterman and others like him had been wrong. He wrote, I pronounce a thermometric gateway to the North Pole a delusion and a snare. The team had to, quote, replace their wrong-headed ideas with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is as they kept running into the rocks or the hardened ice of reality. In September 1879, the USS Jeanette got trapped in the ice pack. For the next 21 months, Jeanette drifted in an erratic fashion generally to the northwest, but frequently doubling back on herself when it was certain that the ship's integrity could no longer endure the pressure of that drifting ice, the crew escaped just hours before the ship sank. The crew got separated. Some made it to Siberia and survived, while others continued their lonely trek through the ice. As for DeLong, he died in late October of 1881 from starvation. But it didn't have to be that way. That same year, a new map was published, one that accurately showed that there was no polar sea to be reached, only ice after ice after ice. All the courage and the experience and the toughness that they brought on that voyage could not overcome the fact that they were following the wrong map. Still, there's a lot that we can actually learn from their story because we've got a lot more in common with DeLong than we might think. You see, while it may not be reaching the North Pole, we each have our own sort of life goals. Maybe not a physical destination, but maybe a professional or an academic or a relational one, and we too have beliefs on how we can get there. Maybe we don't assume that the area surrounding the North Pole uh, should be a certain way, but we may have other assumptions about the way other things in our world should be. Maybe we don't want to believe that there's an undiscovered ice-free polar sea but maybe there's something else that we want to believe is true. Maybe we're not seeking the glory of claiming the North Pole for our country, but we might be seeking another kind of glory. And in light of our own personal goals, our aspirations, and our beliefs, we need to ask, what's guiding us? What map are we following? And how do we know whether it's any more authoritative than the one DeLong and his crew followed to a tragically avoidable shipwreck? like that boat that got stuck in the drifting ice, what defense do we have against the surroundings moving us in one direction or another 
whether it's the currents of our current present uh, cultural moment or reactionary countercurrents, which at times can pull even stronger in an opposite direction. The types of currents that can cause someone to drift further from where they need to go or even crush them underneath their pressure. Let me pause that thought for a moment just to try to get up to speed. Uh, these past two weeks, uh, we have been looking in the scriptures at what it says about the church as a, as a family. A diverse family made up of people from multiple families, and yet one family gathered, called to be together, even amidst our differences. A people who come from different generations and different backgrounds with different accents, uh, different political views, different cultural biases, different socioeconomic and educational backgrounds with different stories and different hurts now called together on a journey of faith. How does God guide, unite, and empower us to be his people together amidst forces that would cause us to drift or even threaten our integrity? That's what we see the Apostle Peter speaking of in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. In your pew Bibles, it starts on page 1,894. This is God's word. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying... This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when, he, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This morning, as we look at this passage, I want us to consider four questions. What does this passage tell us about Scripture? What makes that hard for us to receive? What would it look like to embrace it? And how is it possible? So four things. First, what does this passage tell us about Scripture? Well, just look at how Peter begins. In contrast to those who followed an errant map and, and stories of an Arctic iceless sea, Peter clarifies what they were not following. He said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we brought, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word stories translates the Greek word mythos, where we get the word myth from. It's a word meaning a story without basis in fact. And some in Peter's day believed that the story that they had heard about Jesus was just a myth. Peter acknowledges, yes, such types of things exist. Uh, not all stories that exist are true stories. But Peter says the story of Jesus has a different origin. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. An eyewitness simply meaning Someone who saw and heard something that happened. And the majesty he talks about was witnessed at an event called the Transfiguration, which was a, a full audio and visual revelation of Jesus Christ's deity, which is recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke's Gospels. Summarizing, Peter writes, 
For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter is saying God spoke. He acted. Uh, we, we saw it. We heard it. And that's what we're passing on to you. That's where his message came from. We were eyewitnesses of these things. And it's not just Peter's testimony, but a testimony we hear in other apostles. In 1 John chapter 1, we read, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, that is what we declare to you about Jesus. And there's a reason why they are declaring this message the way that they are. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And so what does Jesus do with that authority as he is leaving the earth? He delegates it, saying to the apostles, Go, make disciples, make Jesus' followers out of people from all nations, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So with that authority, Jesus sends them to teach what he had taught them. Not their own commands, but his commands spoken through them. It's what Peter reminds us of in, in chapter 3, or reminds the readers of in chapter 3, verse 2. And a few verses after that, in chapter 3, verse 16, he explicitly calls the Apostle Paul's writings Scripture, clarifying that his letters are to be regarded in the same way. What Peter is saying is our message, the, the scriptures that have come to you, come with the very authority of God because they are the word of God. You see, they are true because God is true. They can be trusted because God can be trusted. They speak with authority because God speaks with authority. And this isn't just a New Testament thing. Referring to passages in our Old Testament, Peter writes in verse 20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, God the Holy Spirit carried along men who, as a result, spoke from God. And that wasn't just an Old Testament thing. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach and remind the apostles all of the things that they heard from him so that they can pass them on to others. In other words, the messages of Scripture, whether we find them in the New Testament or the Old Testament, words of the apostles or words of prophets, find their origin in God, come by his Spirit, and thus they bear his authority. Which means what we find in the Bible, the Christian Scriptures, is the Word of God. That's what Peter is, is saying here. He's saying, this is your map. This is a source that you can actually trust. This is your authoritative guide to life. And yet it's much more than just that. Because scriptures not only reveal what's true about our world around us, like, like a map might, but also what's true about the inhabitants of that world, about us, while revealing its author and his will to the reader. And speaks with authority on all of that. And if that's what Peter is saying here, what makes this hard for us to receive? Well, well, we all like to believe that we're right. 
And being a diverse community means uh, the bringing together of a lot of people with a lot of different cultural assumptions. We have our own thoughts, our own perceptions about our world and about ourselves and about God. And sometimes our sense of unity largely comes from those shared perspectives. So what happens when the scripture, which claims to be the authoritative word of God, surprises us, challenges us, or has the audacity to tell us that we're wrong? That's a hard sell on multiple levels. A therapist that I know once called the task of convincing anyone in our present cultural moment that they are wrong a fool's errand. And sadly, being a professing Christian does not make you immune from that same reality. Even those who talk about the Bible as God's word can be reluctant to let it challenge their views. For example, the head of one um, evangelical Protestant denomination once shared with a group of pastors um, that when people are looking for churches like the ones that they were pastoring, and their number one question is, do they teach the Bible? What tends to drive their evaluation is not necessarily biblical priorities, but rather what someone is familiar with and what's comfortable. You see, you can like the idea of of the Bible as God's word, this reliable guide in an ever-changing world, and yet be re resistant to receiving it when it challenges uh, your views, when it's not saying what you already believe or when it makes you uncomfortable, when it says that there is a change that needs to take place and it's in you. You see, in our, in our modern Western world, we, we tend to see beliefs as things that we choose, maybe not as much the way that we would choose a map where we ask questions like, is it accurate, and how do I adjust my life and my path in light of it? But maybe the way that we choose our clothes. We ask questions like, is it comfortable? Is it a good fit for me? Or maybe we ask different types of questions like, is it a good look? Would others approve of this style? And sadly, if the answer is no to any of those things, it's possible that we'll just leave it on the rack and try to find something else that, that seems a better fit. Maybe maybe more in style. And while those who believe that the scriptures are God's word may have already, to follow the analogy, uh, put on a certain biblical view or, or a certain biblical practice, when it's no longer considered a good look, when it seems out of style, that there can be a temptation to leave that view or practice behind. You see, to embrace the scripture the way Peter is describing it here means resisting that temptation but it also means letting scripture define things for you. For uh, one group, uh, the Waldani tribe in South America, the words justice and fairness practically meant, for them, a seemingly endless chain of revenge killings against a neighboring tribe. Killings that threatened to wipe out both tribes. Now to us, we can look at that and say, you know, the need for God to redefine those things for them through his word, like, that seems kind of obvious from where I stand. And maybe we might say the same about Saul of Tarsus. As the poster child for zealous first-century Pharisaic Judaism, his understanding of the word righteousness justified his religious persecution of others. Now, it's easy to look at someone else's understanding of things, those from a different culture or those who lived in a different time, um, and imagine that God's response in unison with Inigo Montoya is to say to them, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. 
But what about the culture that we inhabit? You see, we too have things that we value. We too think in terms of love and freedom and fairness. And it can be attempting to assume that, well, those people's concepts of things who lived in that time or inhabit that culture, they needed some redefining, but ours do not. So what happens when God's instructions seem to be out of odds with our modern sense of fairness? Maybe when we realize that obeying them might prove more costly for some people than for others. Or um, how following his instructions might actually make us susceptible to the charges of being unfair ourselves. What happens when the God who describes himself as love says no, or tells us to say no, to something we'd assume anyone would love for us to have or to do? What happens when we've come to associate freedom with being able to do what we want, and God tells us some of the things that we want to be free to do, things that he calls sin, will actually leave us in bondage to their power. You see, to let God define or to let him redefine things for you, to let someone tell you that you're wrong, to let them challenge your own personal, cultural, or generational perspective, uh, to do any of this means doing something pretty radical, pretty countercultural. It means voluntarily putting yourself underneath another's authority, under another's influence. It means assuming a posture of humility. To paraphrase a theologian, N.T. Wright, to approach the scriptures as God word, God's word means not simply to study them, but to let them study you. Not just to ask your questions of the scriptures, but to let God, through the scriptures, question you. We can read in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, which tells us scripture is not something to stand in judgment over, but something that actually has the power to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 is where we see declared that all scripture, even parts that we might struggle with, is God-breathed and is useful not just for teaching and for training, but also at times for rebuking and for correcting not, not just those people, but, but us. And as hard as all of this can seem, as many reasons why we might be reluctant to receive this, we still need to ask, what would it look like to actually embrace this? What does, a, what does a family under scriptures look like? Well, first of all, let me tell you what this does not look like. Sadly, because of the zeal of some, when someone hears about, quote, the authority of the scriptures as God's word, the first thing that might come to their mind is what's called authoritarianism. And there's a big difference. Authoritarianism is about control. Not self-control, but the control of others. And sadly, there are those who, in their desire to control others, have treated the Bible as simply a means to that end. Someone might quote scriptures as a means of proving the sins of others, but be very reluctant to hear how it might point out their own sin. There may be a readiness to, quote, confess the sins of others, but you might never hear the same person confess their own sin. You see, this approach to the Christian scriptures actually denies their very authority by failing to yield to it for oneself. And that's not what we're talking about today. So what are we talking about? Well, to help explain, let me tell you about two of our former seminary interns. One, who uh, grew up in a culturally progressive part of the country, uh, once told me, if I had written the Bible, uh, a number of parts 
would look very, very different. Like, suddenly this room looks very different. <laughs> if somebody knows uh, where the light switches are, if you can turn those back on, that would be, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Ask and you shall receive. This is wonderful. Okay, what was I talking about? Bunnies? No, not bunnies. Um, ah, there we go. Two of our former interns. One of them grew up in a, a culturally progressive part of the country, and, and he once told me, you know, Keith, if I had written the Bible, a number of parts would look very different. But, he said, it's not my word. It's God's word. It's not my church. It's God's church. And so he yielded to what it says, believing things contrary to his own opinions, his own preference, his own cultural biases. His roommate at the time, though, came from a much more traditional background. And as a young adult, he'd always assumed that a number of the, the values he heard some people talking about, a number of concerns he heard some people express, which were never expressed in his home church or from the Christians that he grew up with, they could only come from the influence of, of some political party that he disliked. And so he put all of those values and concerns together, and he kind of slapped a, a political label on them, and learned just to tune out whenever somebody would talk about those things. But as he began studying the whole Bible, and particularly the ethics of the Bible, he found the same concerns and the same values where he never expected to find them. In the Bible, even from, from God himself. In fact, there were entire books of the Bible, uh, parts uh, that, that echoed those same values that he just never heard taught before. And it changed not only how he viewed uh, what was in the scriptures, but how he viewed God, how he viewed people, how he viewed the world that he lived in. Now, well, well, these were two very, very different people from very different backgrounds with a lot of different biases and, and views that what actually caused their views and their lives to converge was their willingness to be corrected, to be proved wrong by the word of God, by the scriptures. It's what comes when we don't put ourselves above scriptures, but, but below it. You see, as we place ourselves under the same authority, we're actually able to come together in ways that we can't without it. You see, we all come from different backgrounds and different cultures with different experiences that shape our views and, and give rise to different assumptions and different uh, priority of values. And as a culture changes with its currents, some of us, because of those things, are more prone to want to go with those currents, while others of us might be more tempted to join the, the countercurrent and, and overcorrect in the opposite direction. But receiving the scriptures as God's word actually helps keep us on course, neither getting swept up in the winds of change nor leaving us vulnerable to a reactionary alternative. And yet, it gives us a way of evaluating all of it, including our own assumptions and biases, ways that we might already be off course. Now, while some have assumed that believing the scriptures to be God's word would actually lead people to be too radical in their views, a study uh, of those who have left uh, the Bible actually reveals, or who left Bible teaching churches, reveals the exact opposite. They found that those who stay in Bible teaching churches are better able to hold intention views and values that help buffer against the polarizing currents of their time. And because of all of this, embracing the scriptures as God's word will always make us a peculiar people. It always has. Larry Hurtado, uh, for example, uh, was the founder of the Center for the Study of Christian Origins at the University of Edinburgh. 
And in his writings, he explains why Christianity in its first three centuries uh, grew despite enduring persecution more than any other religion. At the heart of it was the way that Christians were so different from their surrounding culture in ways that not only offended but also attracted many. And what enabled that in a time when one's religion was assumed to be part of your national or your ethnic identity was this approach to religion that, that said it transcended all ethnicities, all cultures, all social classes. As Pastor Tim Keller summarizes, Christianity radically asserted that your faith in Christ became your new, deepest identity, while at the same time not effacing or wiping out your race, class, and gender. And as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, all were equal in Christ. This challenged the social structures of the Roman Empire, and from it flowed a community with at least five unique features. Uh, first, uh, the church, the early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling people. You see, it's what we saw in the passage that Sam was preaching from last week, and it comes from a vision that was cast all the way back at the beginning in the book of Revelation and runs all the way to the end in the book, sorry, Genesis at the beginning, Genesis at the beginning, Revelation at the end. Almost got that backwards. Pardon. Uh, second, the early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and to the suffering. God's heart for the poor is actually all over entire books of the Old and the New Testaments. While both that, that uh, feature and the first feature that Hurtado mentioned would both flow naturally from teachings like Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable that actually redefined not only what it means to love your neighbor, but clarify that your neighbor was anybody who was in need, even those from ethnic or religious groups that someone otherwise was taught to despise. Third, the early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. As those who believed based on God's word that because of their faith in Jesus, they themselves had been forgiven and reconciled with God, they in turn offered forgiveness and pursued reconciliation with others. Fourth, it was a community uh, committed to the sanctity of life. In a time when unwanted infants were literally thrown onto garbage heaps to either die or be taken by traitors into slavery, Christians saved the infants and took them in. Acts of mercy perfectly in line with Jesus' command to care for, quote, the least of these as if they were him, treating all in light of the words of Genesis, which declared all human beings to be created in the image of God. And fifth, it was a sexual counterculture. While the surrounding uh, Roman culture insisted married women abstain from sex outside of marriage, men were allowed, even expected, to have sex with people of a lower social status, including slaves. To the Roman mind, sex was an expression of your social status and a mere uh, physical appetite that nobody could resist. But Christians saw it instead as a way to give oneself wholly to another person and believed it was only meant to be expressed within the marriage of a husband and a wife. And self-control in this matter was actually seen as a sign of freedom, demonstrating that we aren't just slaves to our desires. The biblical sexual ethic that early Christians followed was just as countercultural in the first century as it is now, even if for different reasons. 
Now, while progressive people today might applaud those first two features of that early Christian community, and traditional people uh, might applaud their emphasis on the sanctity of life and, and their sexual ethic, all five of these features were out of step with the culture and the values of their day. And yet the willingness to live in a way that was countercultural, that was actually costly, speaks a message and creates a community that can quite literally change the world, and it did. And it all stemmed from a diverse group of people coming together as a family under Scripture. So how is that possible? Well, it's possible because the Scriptures that reveal the Word of God also reveal God's character. We see it in verse 17, when Peter quotes God's declaration over Jesus, who says, this is my son whom I love. You see, the words of Scripture are the words of an eternal God of love. As Peter mentions in verse 19, Jesus Christ coming in fulfillment of the words of the prophets made their authority, their trustworthiness even more certain. A faithful guide like light shining in a dark place. And at the center of all the scriptures, the one whose loving light shone most brightly, shone its brightest on, on his darkest day. You see, while we might humble to struggle ourselves before God and his word, especially when we're not sure how it's fair, Jesus showed us what true humility looks like. By taking on flesh and dwelling among those that whom he created, by his word, he humbled himself before all of us, before all of you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus again humbled himself, trusting the Father's goodness, his wisdom, and his power, praying to him, asking his Father, is there another way to accomplish my mission of salvation? Any other way to bring together people from all tribes and tongues and nations together as one family in him? And when the answer back was no, there is no other way, Jesus humbly yielded to God the Father. The next day on the cross, God demonstrated that wisdom that he had, a wisdom greater than our own wisdom, by satisfying the justice that sin requires in a way that allows sinners like us, those who trust in Jesus, to not receive the wrath of God, which would have been fair, but instead receive his loving mercy. And he did it to make us a family, a family under scriptures because we are a family under him with God as our Father, and Jesus as our, as our big brother, who himself was the Word made flesh. When Saul of Tarsus encountered the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, it changed him from one who was willing to take the lives of those who believed differently than he did to one who was willing to lay down his own life for those who didn't yet believe. Because he came to believe, as the scriptures declare, that's what Jesus did for him on the cross. A sacrificial act that showed not only the greatness of his sin, but that God's grace was greater. Two truths that never left him. When the words of scripture came to the Waldani tribe, the ones locked in that seemingly endless cycle of revenge killings, they found at the center of them Jesus Christ. One who satisfied God's justice for sin not by spilling the blood of, of his rivals, but by shedding his, his own blood, dying in their place, so they might become part of his family, thus making peace. 
But before they could hear and receive this word, those who brought them the word of God had to embody it first. A misunderstanding stemming from an otherwise peaceful first meeting between Samuel Dani and a, a group of missionaries led to a, a serious and yet false accusation, which led to a group of Waldani warriors killing five missionaries with their spears. But what some of them could not shake is the fact that these missionaries, with guns in hand, never fired. They wouldn't take revenge. And while they would have understood if the families of the slain sought revenge, they didn't either. You see, instead, they actually befriended the tribe. They cared for their sick. They showed them love. They showed them forgiveness. And in that relationship, showed them Jesus. And as they began to hear the words of the Jesus whom these people followed, what he did was described like this. God had a son. He was speared but did not spear back. So the people spearing him would one day live well. Or as Peter puts it, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Eventually, one of the warriors who killed the missionaries, a man named Minkayani, forged a friendship with the son of one of those whom he had killed, Steve Saint. In a move that showed that members of both communities had come to believe the message of the Christian scriptures, Minkayani invited Steve Saint to come live with them as family. And he did. As former enemies who became family, they learned this way from the scriptures that told them both about Jesus. While both the Waldani and Saul um, had previously been held captive, uh, through their own distorted way of seeing things, it was the word of God, both written and embodied, that helped them rethink what they thought they knew about things and set them free. As N.T. Wright put it, God's authority vested in scripture is designed to liberate human beings, to judge and condemn evil and sin in the world in order to set people free to be fully human. That is what his authority is there for. It's what God wanted for the Waldani people and for Steve Saint. It's what he wanted for Saul of Tarsus, who we now know as the Apostle Paul. And it's what God wants for us today in our journey of faith. And so he gave us his word. Let me pray for us.